I'm delighted to welcome you all to this Forum for European Philosophy event at the LSE Literary Festival. Um, many thanks to the LSE for hosting us today. So my name is Danielle Sands and I'm a fellow at the Forum. Um, and for those of you who don't know, the Forum is an educational charity and we aim to bring philosophy to a wider audience. You can read more about our work and perhaps even make a donation on our website. So today we have four fantastic speakers who are going to be thinking about feminism in the 21st century. So each of our speakers will speak for about 10 minutes, leaving lots of time for discussion and questions. And our speakers will be available to sign books upstairs after the event. So let me introduce our speakers. First, Zoe Williams. So Zoe is a writer and journalist. She's the author most recently of Get It Together, Why We Deserve Better Politics. Next up will be Jacqueline Rose. Jacqueline is Professor of the Humanities at Birkbeck and author most recently of Women in Dark Times. Our third speaker is Heidi Mirza. Heidi is Professor of Race, Faith and Culture at Goldsmiths and she's author and editor of books including Black and Postcolonial Feminisms in New Times. And our final speaker is Sophie Grace Chapel. Sophie is Professor of Philosophy at the Open University, and her books include Intuition, Theory, and Anti-Theory in Ethics. So I'd like to hand you over to our first speaker, Zoe Williams. Right, so I've made this mistake before of appearing on a panel with a load of academics, and the first mistake is to try and sound too intelligent. I'm going to avoid that um, and try and just reflect in a less intelligent, more layperson way about my experience of feminism over the course of my feminist life, my life as a feminist. When I was like five, I suppose, that was 1978, it was still the kind of, the kind of bra-burning feminists who never burnt bras were still very much in the, the face of the feminism. And I guess I assumed because when you're a kid you do assume that your own kind of family is the norm. I just assumed, as I entered adulthood, that those battles that were won, that, those, that all those conversations that had been had needn't be had again. So it's astonishing to me how much of the 90s we spent talking about whether or not you're allowed to shave your legs. And that conversation is still going on, mainly due to the Daily Mail, I think. But... <laughs> So the 90s were a pretty dark time for feminists, I think, and it was a dark time as well for lefties. And certainly, um, you know, people think of the 80s as the real hollowing out of the left. But the, the, the actual depressing time when it became unfashionable to even talk about the left or identify with the left or do anything or mention it or reference it or treat it as though it existed were the 90s. And I kind of feel like the feminism was at the sharp edge of that. So it was really routine as a... It was really routine in the 90s to get letters to newspapers that said, well, I believe in equal pay and universal free childcare and equality and I believe in rape crisis centres and I believe in ending violence against women. But of course I'm not a feminist. Why would I call myself a feminist? As though as though feminism was trying to take something from them, as though feminism was some kind of you know, yogurt-weaving appropriation of their views which were quite commonsensical. And there was no acknowledgement at all, or not so far as I could see, of 
how much feminism had done to create those norms that they were claiming to believe in. So that was quite depressing. <laughs> it was quite depressing the, la- the, the kind of the objectification culture really accelerated then. And we used to have a lot of conversations about kind of Loaded and Zoo and Nuts and all these magazines where um, it was suddenly normal to have women with their tits out on a kind of normal mainstream, non-pornographic medium. And that was a kind of pornification of, of the mainstream, if you like. But at the time, it didn't seem like you could even fight it because the kind of that image of the humorless feminist had become so ingrained that to, that to, to be the person who said, I don't think Jordan should be named the most important woman in the, U- woman in the UK, I don't think she is the most important woman in the UK, to be that person was incredibly unfashionable. And a lot of us just backed off. It wasn't that we didn't believe in it anymore we just it would just got incredibly tiring to be that person always saying the thing when everybody else rolled their eyes so you can imagine when the when the fourth wave when feminism's fourth wave came along which i kind of date very much to kind of 2007 2006 2007 it's, it's been bittersweet for, for the third wave because it's, it's really highlighted how pathetic we were and how useless. <laughs> um, so on the one hand, I want to stand by the sidelines really cheering, and on the other hand, I feel really ashamed and I don't want to admit it. Um, so that's the, that's the good thing. There is a kind of directional pull um, that, that's gone in tandem with what Sylvia Warby always used to call the kind of sustained argumentation, whereby even if culture is kind of going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and progressing and then receding, um, if you really sustain an argument against, say, unequal pay and get it into law, it's very difficult to then unpick that. So, and, and, and the same, the, you can see the same in cl- the climate change debate. There, it, it's kind of gone backwards and forwards. There have, been a, there have been times when no politician would deny climate change and then times when no politician would like wind farms and those times might be six months apart. Um, and so there's a lot of tergiversation but actually the kind of really sustained arguments made underneath all of that in kind of academia and intellectual political circles Created norms which couldn't be gone back, which couldn't be um, eroded, and that, and that, I think the same is true of feminism to a degree. I think there are things that you used to be able to do in the workplace to women um, that you can no longer do. I don't think it's advanced as far as as kind of culture would have you believe. And this is an, this is a kind of technique that I've noticed very much over twenty years that. Um, one of the kind of switcheroos that a kind of misogynistic mainstream does to undermine feminist progress is to portray it as having moved further than it has. So you kind of understand advances to have been made and battles to have been won that actually weren't won. And then everybody stops fighting and you start having a fight instead about whether the pendulum's gone too far. So a really good example of that is rights in, in maternity. Everybody... The, the, the reality is that discrimination in pregnancy is still really, really rife, and it's probably the major discrimination against women in the workplace. Apart from the kind of tacit, unspoken discriminations after women have had children, the actual getting fired because you said you're pregnant is still quite rife, and is, is still against the law, and is really wrong. But 
to, to, to read a kind of mainstream presentation of it, not only does that never happen because everybody knows it's illegal, but the pendulum has gone too far and, and this works against young women because nobody wants to employ a fertile woman, even though actually firing her is, will be really easy. <laughs> um, so you can see from that, and that, and that kind of, that, that kind of, um, it's really a, discursive stunt it's a sleight of hand and it's very dishonest but it's it's really really rife the kind of drip 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 presentation of a reality that is not yet the reality which sucks the wind out of what really what out of the kind of activist activist movements that could happen so a kind of honest fight if the daily mail or richard littlejohn or i don't know anybody any of them wanted to have it would be i don't believe in maternity rights i think pregnant women are a pain in the ass um which you know is is the kind of what's really going on underneath it and then feminists could say well well whatever feminism would say <laughs> um but um instead of having that honest fight you you very much find a kind of discursive picture painted in which that battle is already over and anybody still found talking about it is very boring and it, it it does kind of deflate the movement and i and you do see that quite a lot and that i find probably the, the most depressing thing. No, actually, that's the second most depressing thing. The most depressing thing... Sorry, I've, I've, I'm, my ten minutes is up, but I can never stop talking once I've started. Um, the most depressing thing is the kind of coarsening and casual sexual object, objectification of women that is so much more pronounced now than it was 20 years ago. And... Um, you read all the, then there's there's always a kind of slight unease. Is it really is life really more sexist, or is there just a hashtag of everyday sexism, and so we know about it? Or have, have young men really become more objectifying and more coarse in their view of young women, or is it, are they just three trolls on the internet? Um, and it, and it's quite a hard adjudication to make until you actually talk to young women and realise how different their experiences are and how different. Their, the kind of norms, the, the things that they consider normal are, um, you know, it would have been unheard of in the 90s for a university party to involve women taking their tops off. We would have, it would have been like, I mean, it would have been like dressing up as Nazis. Maybe Prince William would have done it, but nobody else would have done it. It would have been absolutely unheard of. And all those kind of, those things where we thought we were making progress we, we didn't feel the undertow. We thought we, were go, we thought we were like moving towards a common goal where the genders treated each other with respect and dignity. And actually there was this massive pull, which we didn't notice that we were too far out. Um, and that, I think, is, is, the kind of, is the thing I'm really fixated on, which brings me to my final point. I, don't, I kind of used to experience feminism as a kind of discrete political area from the rest of politics and I don't think it can be I think it is part of it's, it is part of the same thing now I, don't, I think it, there was a really good line I, I think by Sarah Dyson about why um, why relationships between men and women have become so kind of vulgar and, and instrumental and uh, kind of mechanistic and, it's, and, and she kind of drew it as part of a neoliberal narrative in which everybody is valuable to somebody else in some way and everybody is kind of trying to monetize their relationship with somebody else and everybody is seeing themselves as investing in somebody else and everything's kind of been reframed as what can you get, what do you have to lay out what to give, to you know and the idea of there being a kind of generous infinite, a spirit of infinite generosity between two people who are intimate has kind of been lost from the, the sexual narrative. So you've either got kind of sex as victimhood or sex as 
getting what you wanted and there's no kind of infinite sex positive communion there's no kind of there's, there's no line in which it's the whole point of it is for two people to give everything away um, and that I, th- that, I think, is, is kind of the main problem with the coarsening of the culture. And I'd leave you with Zoolander 2. If you're in any doubt at all about what's, th- what direction we've gone in and how we kind of see... that, that, that for the first, Zoolander 1 was made in the 90s, right? And it was a really, really sweet film. And even though it didn't pass the Bechdel test and, there were no, and two women never spoke on screen, not about a man, it did... It was, there was something quite sweet about it. It was quite naive. It was quite innocent. I showed it to my kids. Um, and then I took my children to the cinema to see Zoolander 2. They're only six and eight. And there was, it was basically... The culture has become so coarse that women don't belong in a comic movie anymore unless they have an orgy at the end. Um, it's really the direction of how... The, the sexes are seen, how they relate to one another, how they, what's funny, wh- how, how they can make each other laugh, how they can kind of engage one another, has become so ridiculously puerile and unpleasant <laughs> that, um, that a six-year-old can no longer watch it. <laughs> now, some of you might say, don't take your six-year-old to see a 12 in the first place. But, the, but the, the, that, I think, is what, is what we kind of... I would work now towards unifying everything because there's no such thing as a feminist narrative that isn't also an anti-neoliberal narrative, I don't think, and there's no such thing as an anti-liberal narrative that isn't also a sex-positive narrative, and there's no such thing as a sex-positive narrative that isn't a feminist narrative. So I, that's what I'm kind of do, trying to do, is like bring every, smash everything together in like a trifle. Anyway, on that bombshell, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Zoe. Our next speaker is Jacqueline Rose. I want to start by welcoming the time, which is to say that I'm also, well, I'm much older than Zoe, but I also come from that generation who thought things were getting better and have watched things get very bad precisely in the 1990s. And now there's this fourth wave of feminism, which I just want to arms out welcome. I mean, it is so exciting. Yes, it's a comment on what we failed to do. But Julia Mitchell, who wrote the book The Longest Revolution, some of you may know her work, said precisely it is the longest revolution, which is to say that feminism is always up against a kind of undertow of the fundamentally reactionary nature of sexual difference in the psyche, which I'll come back to in a minute, so that you, every time you move forward, you move back and then you move forward again, but it's all part of a process which she termed, when I was in discussion with her a couple of years ago, and we were asked by Jean Radford, uh, but to talk about the successes and failures of feminism. And I behaved like a very well-brought-up sort of academic-type schoolgirl. And I said, well, we did really well on certain things like the Equal Pay Act and sort of women now can go into jobs. But, of course, we did very badly on questions of different sexualities and race. And I just went back and forth like this, sounding the most boring person in the world. And Julia Mitchell just said, it has been a total success. And I thought, what? <laughs> It's been a total success because it is the longest revolution. So I would just like to frame my remarks in in that context and, as I say, to welcome the Times. Um, I think we have to start with the litany, which is just how bad things are. And it is a fact that women are more danger from rape and sexual abuse than they are from cancer, malaria and road accidents combined and warfare 
right? That, that is just a statistic. And we only have to think about Boko Haram. Those girls are still missing. We only have to think of rape as a war crime, FGM, honor killing, the Jimmy Savile, uh, tip of the iceberg, right? The culture of impunity that is still going on and that allowed that to happen for so long, which is to say that it's as if we're witnessing a resurgence of something which a number of us like to think wasn't that bad or was getting better. Now, it's not that it's necessarily getting worse, but it sure is up there and in our sights at the moment, which can also partly be attributed to feminism. We were asked to talk about whether feminism could be a collective, and Zoe addressed that at the end in ways that I would really want to agree with about the need for feminism to be part of other struggles. But I would also want to say, slightly rephrase the question and say, how many different voices can we allow, or in how many different voices should we be allowed to speak? How should the different feminisms relate to one another? And I suppose one of my dreams for feminism is that we should have the courage of our contradictions, which is to say that when we find ourselves speaking on a different page, and even when that becomes quite vitriolic and intense, we should see that as feminism doing something which needs to be done, which is bringing to the surface of the body politic the profound ways in which we do and don't succeed in recognizing each other. Um, I thought I would, so my question would be, how much uncertainty can feminism allow? And might that, in fact, be its gift to the dominant political rhetorics of the world, where you're meant to know what you think and do what you think and act on it with no pauses between them? Anybody who pauses between thinking and killing, for example, is a weak leader, Obama. Whereas feminism can say, can we please slow this down? Can we please think about what is difficult? So I'm going to talk very briefly, and as I've used about five minutes of my time already, but I'm going to talk very briefly about two areas which I think pose incredible difficulties to feminism, but which are absolutely central to it, and which I found myself thinking about. One is honor killing, the other one is trans, which I found myself thinking about as a feminist who felt these issues are posing a challenge to my feminism and to the way I might like to have seen myself and thought about what feminism can and cannot incorporate. So the question of honor killing seems to me incredibly loaded because the very fact of it is used to treat whole communities within British culture as backward, retrograde, primitive, and off the edge of civilization. So at the risk of being a bit academic, there is a disagreement in discussions about honor killing as to whether our role is to say honor killing is part of this culture. It's not part of Islam. Let me make it absolutely clear. There is nothing in the Quran that legitimates honor killing. But it is part of a patriarchal culture. And you can call it a Muslim culture. I'm not saying this. This is one of the way the arguments go. And it is our role as feminists to open up inside that culture the oppression of women. So the example, so the state would then be, is multiculturalism bad for women? That's the title of a book, by the way. Multiculturalism would be bad for women because it tolerates the oppression of women within certain cultures. Okay, there's another argument, which is the opposite, which is there's no such thing as honor killing. First of all, it has nothing to do with honor. It's the wrong name. Secondly, Honor killing is, in fact, a crime of control. It's, in fact, something to do with the way patriarchy works globally across the world. And if you dilute it and concentrate it in one community by calling it honor killing, 
then you are ignoring the continuing persistence of violence of a patriarchal world. Why did patriarchy not die, as B. Campbell has recently proposed her project? So it seems to me that we have to, as feminists, if we want to take on the question of the oppression of women, we have to be wary of David Blunkett, for example, who says that he's going to tighten immigration controls after the 2001 riots, tighten immigration controls in order to fight against the backward nature of practices within certain migrant communities. Now, that's a bit like saying we went, we went to war against Afghanistan to liberate women, right? In fact, it hugely, hugely uh, negatively affected the position of women under the, under the Taliban, uh, who have, of course, reasserted themselves in Afghanistan. So, but the other thing I wanted to say was that if you look into honor killing, you then start to see certain things start to shake slightly, like, for example, what is a man? What exactly is a man enacting the crime of honor killing? And that's not just because there are men who've been interviewed who say, I knew what I was doing was against God, but I will be punished for it later. My honor was more important than my religion. So it's not religious, right? But there's a wonderful writer called Limo Abu Lugod who says the key, the key to this is that men assert their honor in order not to be reduced to women. Men assert their honor violently in order not to be reduced to women. A man in certain Arab cultures is a person whose sister's virginity is a question for him. And I just want to pause and notice the difference between a man is a man if his sister's virginity is a question for him as the most brutal statement of what a patriarchal culture could be and the fear that if he does not exert his honor, he will be reduced to being a woman, which is to say that his masculinity is dependent on her behavior. Her virtue is the security for a masculinity, which as Nawal el-Sadawi says, no, quote, unquote, Arab man, or a man in any culture, as she adds, really believes in. So I think feminism should go for these moments of real trouble where something starts to shake and the identities don't look quite as secure as the dominant rhetoric would like us to think they are. Okay, trans. I come to this because I was asked to write about it, but above all because I felt as a so-called cis woman, a category, by the way, which I do not accept, um, as a so-called cis woman, it was crucial for me to give solidarity to the trans community, to transsexual persons who were going on the most complex, painful journey to move from one gender identity to another. Well, of course, I put my little toe in and realized that what I just said is only partly true because there is, trans is not one thing. I mean, I really can't wait to hear Sophie Grace talk about this. Trans is not one thing. At a binary conference in America a couple of years ago, somebody put up on a blackboard, genderqueer, transgender, agender, bigender, trigender, pangender, non-binary, which is to say two-soul, okay, which is to say that the, the range of identities within the trans community is very, very complex. So on the one hand, you have Caitlyn Jenner, which is, let me be a woman, okay, and I think the viciousness against her has been horrendous and unjustified, by the way, even though she is a Trump supporter, which I won't forgive her, <laughs> okay, and you have to put that discourse against the discourse of Kate Bornstein. Kate Bornstein, who will say, I am not a man, but I'm not a woman either. 
in her extraordinary writing and her public appearances. She was in London last week. Some of you may have heard her. So she actually says that for her being trans is to hold open a question about identity, which everybody, including so-called cis people, should really be thinking about, which is to say the instability of sexual life, the instability of the sexual identity which our culture tells us we should be sure about. Now, this has repercussions which are very, very serious. So in South Dakota last week, they passed a law which means that no trans people can use the toilets of their newly taken on gender. They cannot use their toilets. Guess what the argument is? Male to female trans people are a danger to women, right? Because male to female trans people are going into those toilets out of dubious motives, right? (laughs) To infiltrate the space of women. This, of course, was Janice Raymond's famous transsexual empire, disgusting transphobic book, which argued that male to female transsexuals were the embodiment of patriarchy and phallic law, okay, because they gave up their masculinity to infiltrate, <laughs> to colonize, to colonize female spaces. Well, there's a distinction that some of you may or may not know between the phallus and the penis in psychoanalysis. So Janice Raymond wasn't intending this, but I always find it incredibly helpful. I say, you want to know the difference between the phallus and the penis? Read Janice Raymond. The phallic embodiment of male power is someone who's given up their penis. It's clear, right? <laughs> Couldn't be clearer. But, of course, it's completely the wrong argument because the people in danger, like Chelsea Manning, like Joanne Latham, who died in a British prison a few weeks ago, a few months ago, the people in danger are the trans people, male to female, who are forced back into the male toilet because they will be raped and attacked if not killed. So this is a case where the argument is really seriously at odds with how we need to think. So what I want to say is two things, in a way, by way of summary, which is that I think feminism should go for the trouble spots. It should go for the places in the culture where something's going on, which, on the one hand, you make your demand. You say what is just. You fight for injustice and against prejudice against women and against trans people. But on the other hand, you say, wait a minute, guys. Look what's coming to the surface of what we're being allowed to think about. And wouldn't it be good if we all thought about that a little bit more. So that's the feminism I want, one that is a collective as needs be, but doesn't have an anxiety about what it means to think the difficulty of our psychic and social identities. Thank you. Thanks, Jacqueline. And Heidi Mezzer is our next speaker. Hello, everybody. I feel like I'm in some kind of debate at the Oxford Union. We each have to put our fors and against. Um, and, uh, but it's lovely to be here and see so many people I know. Am I speaking to the converted? <laughs> um, I, think, I can think of a few people who should be in the room that are not in the room, but that's another story. Um, So I want to say that we cannot talk about feminism and the future of feminism without talking about the past. And it's only in this way that we can reveal and understand the present. 
and then we can then shape the future. I've been involved in feminism for some 40 years Ever since I came to Britain in the 1970s as a young woman from Trinidad, I know I don't look it. <laughs> not that I'm not from Trinidad, but the age, you know. Um, <laughs> you didn't see the fashion show. My poor partner had it this morning, you know. Do I look too young in this? <laughs> um, but in all that time, and that's an issue for feminism, um, but anyway. But... I'll stick to my script. In all my time of studying social sciences, women's studies, history, literature, I actually never heard ever of Indian women suffragettes. And it was complete happen chance that some 10 years ago I stumbled upon a crumpled photograph in a dark corner of a museum in London. And wow, it was just this moment like a shaft of light, you know, like, um, like in Star Trek, you know, when you get beamed up. It was just this shaft of light, and suddenly I discovered myself in history. I suddenly saw the hidden genealogy of women of color. Yet in these accounts that I found, just a few accounts of these Indian women suffragettes, they were described as no more than exotic multicultural creatures in colorful saris. And they were posed in sharp contrast to the gray, staunch, defeminized suffragettes. All gray and obviously not fashionable. But Gayatri Spivak, the post-colonial critic, tells us that this is an erasure and reconstruction of history and it is a form of epistemic violence. And I was told not to use any big words. But, <laughs> but it's a form of violence done to black and minority women. Similarly, Chandra Mohanty, in her classic study, Under Western Eyes, remarks that third world women are seen as mute, visible objects, inarticulate. They are just voices in the dark. Unlike white women, who are seen the only legitimate subjects of struggle. But let me fast forward the button now to October 2015. And the film Suffragettes was released. Do you remember that? Has anybody seen it? Was it any good? <laughs> I didn't see it. <laughs> I didn't want to see it, but maybe that's because there were no Indian women suffragettes in it. Um, the story is already told. The scripts are already written. But when the film was released, the female cast with Meryl Streep in the fall wore T-shirts to launch the film with the inscription of Emily Pankhurst's um, famous quote. Do you know what it is? Let's hear it. I'd rather be a rebel than a slave. It was a thoughtless publicity stunt. Completely and insensitively, it overlooked the invisible other. They did not see the insult to the descendants of the enslaved and their diaspora. The black enslaved did not choose to be a slave. For them, it was a struggle just to be human, just to stay alive. So feminism is fraught with these intersectional struggles. This is what 
this past and present issue tells us about the suffragette story. Whose voice, whose platform do we hear? How is difference recognized and acknowledged? And indeed, whose difference is acknowledged and by whom? There's a strong thread of colonialism that runs through mainstream feminism. Or should I say white feminism? Or should I say cis feminism? I don't know, there's so many terms, but we can have that debate. Um, We have to ask, why do we need a black feminism at all if mainstream white feminism is anti-racist, now intersectional, and inclusive? But maybe we need a black feminism because it's not. Intersectionality is the bread and butter of black feminist theory. It goes to the heart of who we are. It's the stick of rock that runs through us. Do you know the stick of rock? You cut it and intersectionality will be all the way through. Um, If you cut us open, you will see the multiple identities and complex lives where race, gender, class, sexuality, religion, nationality, age and disability intersect and shape who we are as living, embodied persons. As one young black woman told me, intersectionality is in all of us. Intersectionally, intersectionality happens in the racialized state harassment of Muslim and black women, whose innocent sons and daughters are now subject to state surveillance through government anti-terrorist strategies such as prevent in our schools. That is what intersectionality is. It's also the fate of black and mixed race, LBGTQ people and refugee women who are disproportionately incarcerated in prisons and detention centers. This is like Sarah Reed. Have you heard of the story of Sarah Reed? Well, Sarah Reed was beaten in police custody She was a mixed-race woman who had mental health issues. She was imprisoned and died later, actually, in January. And the recent hashtag Say Her Name vigil for Sarah (coughs) highlights the systemic state-sanctioned violence against women of colour. For black feminists, intersectionality is our political tool. It enables us to reveal from the standpoint our lived experiences of how oppressive systems of power work through sexist, racist, classist institutional structures, how we become embodied into that system. However, while intersectionality is a lifeline for black and post-colonial feminists of colour, it has become an important buzzword for white feminists. It has become a political concept To be intersectional is now to claim an anti-racist position. So you can proclaim, we are not racist, we are inclusive, we are having an intersectional event. This proclamation is what we call performativity. It's like the saying becomes the doing. It's what we call a speech act. You tick the box of intersectional doing. You just say you're doing it but it does not fundamentally challenge your assumptions. This has happened with diversity and equality as well. Institutions say they're for equality and diversity. They write the documents and they become somehow more diverse just in the saying. 
but nothing really changes. It's a kind of deceit, you know, a kind of illusion. And I'll explain how this notion of intersectionality works. Recently, I was, a very, I was at a very posh, middle-class, white feminist political meeting. I don't know why they invited me. I think it was because they needed to be intersectional. Um, we were regaled with concerns about equal pay, women in the boardroom, and better childcare. And a young black woman, there were two of us, she said, what does this meeting offer her mother, an older, retired black woman? And the room went completely silent because we were there as, I suppose, vases in the room. But, you know, when we actually asked a question, it went silent. We were told that actually they made a special trip to a tough inner-city borough where black women were so angry that they made them cry and they had to actually leave the room. Hey, but this is why black women get angry. <laughs> you know, they dip their toad in, toes in, not toads, toes, and they didn't like what they saw. But Audre Lorde, the black feminist, invokes the figure of the angry black woman. This is what Sarah Ahmed, the wonderful feminist queer writer, calls the killjoy feminist. I see there's a couple of killjoys here. Um, and the killjoy feminist shows how our rightful anger is used to further exclude us in a self-fulfilling prophecy that has its own logic. And this self-fulfilling prophecy around anger goes like this. Black women are excluded and so get angry, which in turn reinforces the white expectation that we are angry and difficult in the first place. And then this, in the end, justifies our exclusion as we bring, as Sarah Ahmed says, bad feelings into the room and make white women feel guilty and bad. So we justify our own exclusion. It's kind of like this big circle we can't get out. However, white women activists in the meeting did not feel guilty or bad about championing the campaign against FGM and honor killings. It's a bit like saving the oppressed Muslim women from the Taliban. <coughs> this saving of women from barbaric patriarchal customs, customs that are out there belonging to other cultures in far-off places, reaches back to the colonial era. The colonial era of Western superiority of Western civilization on a hierarchy. This is what Spivak calls a phenomena of saving brown women from brown men. It's a kind of colonial justification. In this voyeuristic act of missionary, what I call Adam Stir, beneficence, we forget to look at the poverty of mental health, destitution and violence against women right here on our doorstep. Somehow, and it was very interesting listening to Jacqueline's talk, but because somehow black and minority ethnic women are seen to suffer what Anne Phillips calls death by culture. Somehow, culture is the thing that oppresses us. 
But the white mainstream society, even though they have gun crime and violence against women, it's seen as a social phenomena, not a cultural phenomena. We need a reflexive feminism that holistically tackles all these issues. Finally, I've reached the end. Finally, in thinking through the future of feminism, I want to end by staying, saying we live in the best of times and the worst of times. I was feeling a little depressed when both of you were talking, like, you know, the dark times of the 90s. That's when I kind of was my good times as well. So we do live, I think, in the best of times and the worst of times for feminism. It's the best because, hey, we have this room here filled with hopeful feminists. I hope you're hopeful. <laughs> Do you want to see a better world? Yes. <laughs> Isn't it great to have a safe space? I just feel, I was really nervous when I saw everybody and I thought, oh my God, there's so many people. But then, you know, how rare is it to have a space, a safe space to discuss such issues as this? It's a privilege. <clears throat> Thank you, LSE. And Sheikh Zaid, whoever you may be. <laughs> That joke wasn't in my script. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. But it's the worst of times for this reason. We live in a time of what I call the illusion of equality. And you could tweet that. The illusion of equality in these so-called post-race and post-feminist times we are told we have achieved the nirvana of race and gender equality. Feminism and anti-racism is deemed past its sell-by date, consigned to the scrap heap of bygone eras. As women, we told we have it all. Work, children, education, sex sometimes, and handbags. I was looking at posh porn. There was a handbag for £8,000. Anyway... We're told how lucky we are. And the hurt parties are now the white men who are being discriminated and left behind. I see a couple of smiles there. For black women, it is a double whammy. In a post-feminist and post-race world, the world is deemed colorblind. For them, any impediment to success is seen of one of personal lack, of personal lack of aspiration, lack of culture, and lack of role models. And these deceits of the post-race and the post-feminist world are really hard for us to navigate. You're told you have it all, and at the same time, you know you don't have it all, because if you did, you wouldn't be here. So as we go forward in the 21st century... We need to think about what solidarity really means for feminists. The enemy patriarchy is greater than the sum of our parts. And we tear each other up, black feminism, trans feminism, cis feminism. We tear ourselves up, but the enemy is greater than the sum of our parts. We need to decolonize feminism, to keep our eye on the prize and ask ourselves, how can we build a truly universal, strong, inclusive feminism? One that can tackle patriarchy head-on 
in all its misogynistic, cultural, religious, economic, and social forms across the globe. Is this too much to ask? Is this utopia? I would say, watch out. You know that Boots ad? Here come the girls. I was going to sing it, but my mum always told me I can't sing. Can you sing it? Here come the girls. <laughs> Thank you very much. And over to our final speaker, Sophie Grace Chapel. Thank you. The mole has landed. The mole of patriarchy is here. <laughs> Actually, I am a mole, but not for patriarchy. I'm a mole for something like democratic socialism. Because it seems to me that all the issues that we're discussing here are issues about getting a fairer society, about getting a society where nobody is allowed to fall by the wayside, where nobody is allowed to go to the wall, where the human rights of all are respected, where the contributions of everybody are valued, and where the needs of all are thought about and responded to. And listening to my sisters and what they've just been saying, I think it's very plain that we live in a society where the liberal consensus and the liberal structures that most of us have taken for granted for most of our lives are now under increasing threat. We have a government which is increasingly illiberal, which is increasingly prepared to pass swinging laws that directly attack human rights, and the effect of which is, from the presumption being before the law was passed that um, you're free to do whatever you want, the presumption becomes that it's the police's discretion, it's the authority's discretion, whether they bother you or not. So we end up living in a state where all our rights exist only by the favour of the authorities. And those are not rights at all. And living in fear of someone else's discretion, that is the condition of tyranny. And we're heading towards it very fast in this country. And there's another thing which I think is a, a threat to us all, and that is, um, it's quite a recent phenomenon. We'll call it, call it the phenomenon of the charismatic alpha male blowhard politician. <laughs> you don't need to know anything to be a leader anymore, it appears. You don't need to avoid contradicting yourself. You don't need to have any policies. You don't need to have any grasp on anything. Just a few Saloon bar prejudices is enough to make you a candidate. And that, unfortunately, there are lots of people around with terrible hair. It's not just me. It seems to be people with terrible hair. <laughs> but this is a real threat. Because there's a funny thing about the people who do this style of politics. You might get to notice they're all male. And they do emit saloon bar prejudices all the time. And the saloon bar prejudices are characteristically anti-women, anti-trans, anti-gay, anti-other races. And it's typically wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, um, 
who have this kind of outlook. Now, this is a real threat to us as a liberal society, to us as a social democratic society, and it's a real threat to feminism too. And it's a real threat to people like me who are trans. And I think the thing above all that I need to say this morning is that whatever your gender, whatever your race, whatever your background, it's absolutely necessary for us to stop taking liberal democracy for granted. We're getting into a time, I'm afraid, where we need to get out there and fight for it. We need to protest. So I think it's time for us to get something like a quiet revolution going. I don't mean a revolution with guns. I mean a revolution with arguments. And I mean a revolution with footfall, with lots of people backing it. It's not just feminism we need to defend, it's lots of other things, because the liberal consensus is in very rocky shape. And the institutions that defend the liberal consensus are in terrible shape. I'm thinking, for a start, of the Labour Party and the European Union. They're both in a very bad way at the moment. What they need above all is our energy and our activism. Otherwise, we end up with a commodified politics, a politics of billionaires fighting each other. And they'll be male billionaires, you take my word for it. And the rest of us are commodified, we're pushed back into a corner, we're given our baubles, go away and play on your Xbox. The grown-ups are talking. That is the authority's attitude, increasingly, to the individual citizen. We are in danger. We are in danger of tyranny and we need to fight back. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. Feminism is important in this discourse because feminists are like canaries down the mine. Women are like canaries down the mine. When things go bad for human rights, it's the women who get hit first. Again and again that happens. Or it's the racial minorities, or it's the people who are trans. We are canaries down the mine. And we, I suspect, a lot of us are feeling bad air. I don't know how to carry on with this metaphor, but we need to do something about that bad air. Let me move on a little and say something about where I'm coming from as a trans person. So I want to say a little bit about what it is to be trans and then I want to say a little bit about how that impacts on politics and feminist politics. (coughs) So being trans, it's like in the words of Leonard Cohen, there's a crack in everything. Because what you experience every single day is that there's a crack in you. There's a gap between your body and your mind, between your sense of yourself and what you see when you look in the mirror, between what you want to be and what you've got to be, between the unrealistic happy dreams you have every night and the deflating miserable reality you wake up to every morning. School is not a good place if you're transgender. And that gap, so far as I can make out, isn't there for people who aren't transgender for cisgendered people, as I'm going to call them. I don't actually care about the terminology. It's just there for convenience. They too may suffer from physical self-loathing, but it won't be for quite this reason. They may have serious problems with their body image. There can be a gap between the shape they are and the shape they want to be, but they experience no gap between being the gender they are and being the gender they want to be. Often they have difficulty even imagining what it might be like to feel such a gap. And in that sense, I don't think it's wrong to think of being transgender as a kind of body dysmorphia. 
I don't mean that's the only way to think about being transgender. There are lots of ways, obviously. But at least some of the time, that's exactly it. It distresses you to have the body you got. You wish profoundly that you had a different one, in my case, a female one. When you're feeling demanding, you don't just want to be a woman, you want to be a beautiful woman. And this can cause grave distress. And it can also cause, of course, cause grave embarrassment and difficulty. You end up hiding the fact that you're transgender. And I hid the fact that I was transgender from absolutely everybody for 34 years and from nearly everybody for 50 years. I only fully came out in December 2014. And that's hard in lots of ways. You feel that you're being dishonest and two-faced and deceptive with everybody. And that's exhausting and it's depressing. The hardest thing of all, I think, is that as long as you hide your being transgender, there's one thing you can never know, which is how people would treat you if they knew. And you're bound to suspect that your family and friends, if they really knew all about you, couldn't possibly go on loving you. Maybe this is why I'm a philosopher, because it's, it's almost like Cartesian scepticism. There's this gap between what I know about the world or think I know and what others know or think they know about the world, and I don't know how to bridge that gap. Well, I've been incredibly lucky because I came out and it turned out like nearly all my friends could accept me. Surprised though they were to discover that I was transgender, they accepted me and some of them were very surprised indeed. And when someone who's transgender comes out, I think to people who see it from the outside, it's likely to seem that things have got weird, that things have got bumpy, the roads got bumpy, just at that point where the transgender person comes out. Whereas to me, to the transgender person in this, Coming out is exactly where the weirdness stops and where, well, I don't know if the crack goes away, but it gets a lot smaller between you and the rest of the world. Psychologically and personally, even morally, the difficult thing for me was being transgender in secret. After that, being openly transgender is, well, I wouldn't say it's completely easy, but it's a lot easier. So that's the autobiography. What does that mean for the politics? What do I want to say about being transgender in society? The first thing I want to say is just that being transgender typically involves a lot of plain distress, of unhappiness. If you're lucky, you can end up a happy transgender person. I've been extremely lucky in that way. But it doesn't happen easily. And there are plenty of pitfalls along the road. And it never becomes completely easy. On the basis of my own experience, the first thing I feel for anyone else who I learn is transgender, is that my heart goes out to them. Because being transgender is a kind of being wounded. It hurts. Now the pain and the alienation that being transgender can cause can lead transgender people into unfortunate responses. One is the kind of Rocky Horror Show, drag queen kinkiness version of being transgender. Now I have nothing against kinkiness. It has its place. But it's places between consenting adults in the bedroom, or maybe the cinema. The kinky has no place as a representation of what it is to be transgender, any more than Playboy or whatever has, a rep has a place, any place as a representation of what it is to be a certain kind, perhaps a rather questionable kind, of heterosexual male. A lot of the time, being transgender is about as louche and as dark and pervy, about as frankenfurter, as the sound of music. 
But when the whole of society is busy telling you that you're a filthy, disgusting pervert and should be off in some murky, disreputable corner, it's quite easy to internalise that attitude, even if you don't mean to. Maybe this is changing now. Maybe transgender is getting less strange to people. It's taken long enough. Another response that transgender people are easily driven into is anger. No one can listen to recent debates between feminism and transgender without catching a whiff of cordite. There's a huge amount of anger on both sides. And in both cases, I suspect, it's for the same reason. One historically oppressed group hopes for the support of another and finds them not supportive at all, but treacherous. Some feminists see transgender people as treacherous because they often seem to buy into an ideologically constructed version of femininity. Some transgender people see feminists as treacherous because they say things like, you can't make yourself into a fucking woman by cutting your bloody bits off. (laughs) That is a quotation. (laughs) The feminists in these debates insist that there's more to being a woman than any socially constructed version of what it is to be a woman. And they're right. And the transgender debaters retort that when the feminists deny the right of trans women to call themselves women at all, they're being essentialist. And they're right too. So there we have it, a familiar, much thought-over minefield. And I'm going to skip naked through this minefield and see if I can do it without getting blown up. One thing the left is very good at, one thing we on the left are extremely good at, is Palestine People's Liberation Front type, internecineness, division. We fight each other over tiny little differences. We kill each other, we destroy each other because we disagree over minor details and meanwhile in the background of us struggling on the floor arguing over some jot or tittle of the law in the background Franco's tanks are rolling by in the background the Spanish Civil War which is an outstanding example of this internecineness is being lost to the fascists because we were too busy calling people who differ from us by 2.5 ideological degrees we're too busy calling them fascists to deal with actual fascists. (laughs) Anyway, here's what I'm going to say about gender and sex and then duck and run away very fast. (laughs) I think sex is nature and gender is nurture. There's the body you were given by biology, which usually, not always, takes a fairly definite male or female shape. That fixes your sex. There's the feminine or the masculine that you were brought up as or that you choose to identify as, and that's your gender. Now, that is too crude, because there are plenty of other factors in the mix, too. The most obvious one is hormones, which science is showing us does a great deal of work indeed in making people feel masculine or feel feminine. But what I'm saying in my telegraphic way is there's a side of being male or female that is a matter of choice, and there's a side that isn't. So the unrestricted voluntarism of some trans activists, their idea that gender or sex is purely a matter of choice, That seems unwarranted to me. I kind of think, if only it were. Whether you present as masculine or feminine or neither, or a bit of both, is a matter of choice. But your gender or sex can't simply be a matter of choice. If it was, wouldn't being transgender be easy? I'd just choose to be a woman just like that, like a shot, and all my troubles, all my gender troubles, would be over just like that. But no transgender person's gender troubles are over in a moment just like that. So pure voluntarism, I think, has got to have something wrong about it. But unrestricted essentialism, 
as bought into by some feminists. Their idea that your gender or sex can't be a matter of choice at all, if you ask me, that's not true at all either. It's false for the same reason. Because natal sex isn't a matter of choice, not for me, it might have been for my parents, but my gender presentation is. So there you are, that was the dash across the minefield. If feminists of the school of dear old sweary Germain want to insist that women are one thing and trans women are another, I think they're probably right about at least many trans women. They're probably not right about all trans women. Some of us really do make the journey all the way and become pretty well completely indistinguishable from natal women at both the gender and sex levels in every respect except history and internal anatomy. But the feminists who say that kind of thing are certainly right about, for example, me. I'm not a cis woman, and I don't claim to be. I don't know whether one day I want to claim to be, but right now I certainly don't. I'm a trans woman, a trans woman, and that's not the same thing. But I don't think I should have to claim to be a cis woman to be treated as a trans woman with full respect by society at large, and I hope as an ally by feminists. I hope for the full respect of society at large because I think there's room on the gender spectrum for more than two binary positions. There's room, too, for a choice not to place yourself anywhere on that spectrum. Being non-gender defining is a possibility. In politics, though I describe myself as a socialist, I'm basically a soppy old John Stuart Mill liberal. And I'm a feminist because and insofar as feminism is a corollary of Millian liberalism. So naturally, I think that people should be allowed to try what Mill, in On Liberty, calls experiments in living that aren't either traditionally male or traditionally female or even traditionally transgender. I suppose, in a way, this is an experiment in living, what I'm doing by living like, like this. It is a free country, still, just about. And I don't expect to be outgrouped for living as I do, either by people on the right or by people on the left. So the future of feminism, as you'd expect from a soppy old liberal like me, the future I hope for is one of entirely platitudinous and straightforward liberal niceness. For me, it's all about boring platitudes and truisms like live and let live, play nicely, all you need is love, do as you would be done by, mutual tolerance and respect wherever humanly possible. And I don't, incidentally, by saying that mean that I think I'm, I'm into a no-matter-what-you-are politics. I recognise that different groups bring something distinctive to the table. It's important that feminism has a distinctive contribution to the debate. It's, it's not just a matter of it, it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or not. Of course it matters. It matters important. It matters hugely. It's not that it doesn't matter whether you're black or white. Black people have a distinctively different perspective, many different perspectives, and we need to hear those. Otherwise, thing, things end up being just white and straight and old-fashioned liberal in the ironing out differences way instead of the hearing from differences way. So in this particular case, we want a rainbow rather than a bipolarity. We want a deeper ascendant acceptance of gender diversity. We want a wider understanding there are lots of different ways of being either masculine or feminine or neither and lots of ways of being transgender too. And we need an understanding that playing and exploring and experimenting with the typology and the imaginary of gender, as our society has variously constructed it, it can be just that. It can be play, exploration, experimentation. It doesn't have to be the reinforcement of any kind of oppression at all. 
But it goes without saying, I'll come back to this point to close, that any such happily liberal future, that I, as I hope for, is as threatened today as the liberal democracy that's given us all, cis or trans or neither, these freedoms that we now live by. We need to keep up our guard. We need to stand up for our rights. And above all, we need not to tell ourselves that all the major battles are already won. When I look around the world scene at the moment, I suspect that some of the biggest battles of all that we who are liberals are going to have to face are only just beginning. To the barricades. Many thanks to all of our speakers. I think we will go straight to some questions. So if you could keep your questions quite short and focused so we can get in as many as possible. Um, and do be aware that this event is being recorded for a podcast, so if you ask a question, your voice may appear on the recording. Lady at the front. First of all, I want to say thank you to the people at the front and the people in the room. It's great to be in such a gathering. Um, like... Zoe and Jackie, I go back... Jacqueline. Sorry, Jacqueline, I apologise. I go back to the time of all those previous feminisms, and I got this point of actually almost being ashamed to use the word feminism, and suddenly Jude Kelly decided to resurrect the word. But what I feel is really important, and Gloria Steinem said it the, night, the other night, you had the right to define yourself. So I've been working on, from the point of view of the STEM people, in um, the fact that this country's lagging behind because they haven't got enough engineers and women, and the fact that we need role models. We need to do it from the top. It's about power and money and militarism, and we need to have women in all of those places, and we're not getting them. They have been there, but they've been taken out. How many people in this room know of Dame Stephanie, who is probably equal to Richard Branson in one respect, how many people know of um, what happened to Susan Greenfield, who was made director of the Royal Institution, and like Julia Gillard, the first woman Prime Minister of Australia, I don't use the word former, who was hounded by the worst kind of misogyny. And she has now moved into education globally, good for her, and she says, call out sexism wherever it happens. The role models are there, I've got a list of them. And you would be, how many people know about the black woman who grew up in Streatham and was told she should get a job in Woolworths, is a judge, a barrister, a judge, was ombudsman in the Cayman Islands, and is now the ombudsman to the military in this country. The role models are there. Let's celebrate them. All the things that you're talking about are great, on the barricades, all of that. Been there, done that. I want to bring out the inspirational women because they are fantastic. Other questions? <laughs> Lady there. Is there a party in this country that we should be supporting, or should we start a new one? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm, t I'm busy tweeting. <laughs> well, I'm not on Twitter, so shall I have a go at that one? <laughs> um, I think that... Um, basically, yes, vote Labour. Um, but a more subtle, nuanced answer, I think that we need to look for wherever progressive forces, liberal forces, and people who are prepared to stand up and defend liberal democracy 
Those are the parties we should be voting for. And actually, at the local level, it might become more complicated than that. It might depend on where you are. In Scotland, for example, we face quite different choices. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think you have to look and see what people are offering. And, of course, it's the case that there have been some people on the Labour ticket who have been remarkably intolerant and remarkably worrying for all sorts of reasons. So it's, it's not a shoe in every time. There's a question towards the back. Yes, please. Thank you. Could you hear me okay? Yeah. Um, Thank you very much for all the speakers. Just really, really stimulating, and it's just so exciting. My, My question is to Zoe. You mentioned a point about fourth wave feminism starting around, you dated it around 2006-2007 and I just wanted you to sort of just say a little bit more about that because I'm thinking, did I miss something in 2006? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I suppose that's a really good question. I... I'm dating it from there because by 2011 you had a lot of actual concrete movements, so the kind of women on banknotes, women in um, the Everyday Sexism Project, the Vagenda Project, and those all gathered steam. The Sisters Uncut all came from grassroots organisations that already existed. So I did take a bit of a stab in the dark assuming they existed for four years before then. It could have been that they started in 2009. I definitely think it wasn't just social media. It was also, I think the financial crash had a lot to do with it because it opened up space for people who were talking about other things to realise that they could organise in different ways for feminist ends as well. So as people, people, for instance, were trying to mobilise against austerity and talk about um, tax evasion then they started to meet and talk about how they could do that from a feminist perspective I think the feminist economics movement has been instrumental because it had quite good networks and they fed into a kind of more profound idea of feminism generally so that's kind of where I, I, I suppose I started with the crash because a lot of things came out of that but I don't think I could pinpoint it to one, one movement on, in that era. Does that help? Does that make any sense at all? Okay, good. I, like. I think there's a question over there. Um, could I ask Sophie Grace in particular if yeah, she has any thoughts on the notion of meritocracy and feminism? Um, sorry, I didn't quite hear the question. Was that meritocracy and feminism? Emotional. Emotional. Did you say emotional? Emotional, emotional. meritocracy. Emotional. 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 Can, can we have the question again? <laughs> I, I really haven't got it. I'm sorry. But, but what's the question saying about that? Could you just say that a little bit louder? Sorry, any thoughts about the notion of a meritocracy? Any feminism. thoughts about emotional meritocracy? No, no, no. Emotional. The, the notion of the idea. meritocracy oh, I, in I'm feminism. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> my approach to meritocracy would be simply one guided by the concept of desert. People should be given um, jobs in society on the basis of desert. 
So, yes, I believe in meritocracy. Oh, I don't. Jacqueline? Um, I really don't. Okay. And neither do I. Because dessert is not neutral. And, um, you know, for a while at Sussex University, I was the only woman in a faculty of 34 men. The shocking lack of diversity across the university academy, it's one of the things that's behind the Rose Must Fall campaign in South Africa, which, of course, has come across to the UK, which is the lack of black academic presence in the universities. I'm afraid I believe in positive discrimination. Um, When people say, well, that's an unbalanced attitude, or people say, can we have some balance here? I say... Balance is a corrupt concept in an unbalanced world. So you have to act on the side of justice and you have to intervene. So I really, we, this is good, we really, dis- <laughs> we really disagree in a nice way. Okay, sorry. I mean, I, I think the thing with meritocracy is that it's, it's turned into an argument about um, mobility. So if we have a meritocracy, then we have social mobility. And if we have social mobility, then society is basically okay. I think social mobility is just a sweet way of saying survival of the fittest. So you're just you're basically saying as long as we've got a society in which the strongest and the most ambitious can thrive, then everybody else can go to hell because they're lazy anyway. Um, I, I think we need to check. We need to really turn it around and say what are conditions like for the least ambitious person in your society um, with the least advantages. And does that person live in dignity? Because actually, ambition isn't everything. And if we were all ambitious, our children would be dead. So, um, so you know, that, that I, w- I would like to see a new narrative in which we, make, we ensure dignity for the least ambitious and that everybody else flourish on that baseline. I agree with that. Oh, OK. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Well... I've got lots to say about everyone's questions, but I, on, on the point of... I'll start at the bottom, and I'll start with the meritocracy, because is Cameron there because of merit? Is Boris there because of merit? Is Trump there because of merit? No, they're there because of everyone's Money. expectations. And meritocracy <laughs> is one of the biggest, again, illusions of neoliberalism, that somehow you get what you deserve, and society <coughs> always has to be fair. But it's not a level playing field. There is no fairness. And so meritocracy, and I see you're smiling there (laughs) because you're going to disagree with me. So meritocracy is the reason and the way in which we are contained and curtailed into believing that somehow we can have no special favours and therefore we should not have equality policies and we shouldn't have, you know, special gender... um, uh, all those things in the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> what things? Quotas. <laughs> um, so meritocracy is, I think, the root Con. cause of inequality. So it actually is a really big issue. Can I say, can I say a bit more about what I had in mind in giving that answer? <laughs> because very often um, people get caught up on a label and people are coming from different perspectives. and they... here's, here's the background to what I just said. I work for the Open University, and we accept anyone to do an undergraduate degree, no matter what their background, and we charge cheaper fees than most universities in England. It's a great matter of regret to me that we charge fees at all, but that's another story. What I see as an employee of the Open University is loads of people who, in the conventional system 
which I suppose aspires to Oxbridge, they wouldn't have a chance because they've already been chucked out by, they've been spat out by the system at the age of 20 because they didn't get a degree the first time round or something went wrong in their background or they come from disadvantaged parts of society. I see people from those backgrounds having their lives transformed by education. And I think one of the biggest levers for social change, for uplift and inclusion of the disadvantage that we've got is education, university education. That's why I'm so strongly against charging fees for it Mm. and making it, as it's now being turned into, an elite activity. So what I had in mind when I said that I'm in favour of meritocracy is that I think people from those backgrounds are not being given their chance. They're being excluded by the system. That's happening more and more, thanks to Cameron, Johnson, and Hunt, Gove, and other people who were at Oxford at the same time as me. Um, it's, it's happening more and more. And it's a really bad thing, because it's making our society more unequal. Meritocracy, in the sense I mean it, is the opposite of that kind of making sure that the people who are on the top of the system stay on top of the system. And that's why, in a sense, I'm very glad that I don't teach in an elite university, because in an elite university, I might well just be reassuring the people on top of the pile that they're going to stay on top of the pile. Mm. Okay, let's take some more questions. I think maybe there was a question there. Hi, um, Sophie Grace. I think it's very interesting what you said at the beginning of your talk about these politicians who are talking hatefully and characterising them as men, because I think there's plenty of women in public figures, politicians or not, like you might want to look at Sarah Palin in America or Theresa May, say, here, or whatever that woman is who always says those terrible things and writes for the Daily Mail. I can't remember what her name is. (laughs) (laughs) There's plenty of women who are speaking publicly and spreading very negative messages about a lot of different groups. And I just wondered what the whole panel's opinion was on what that means for feminism. Yeah, I mean, look, this has been, this has been a real fixation of, like, the media class for, since forever. It's like, why do women attack other women? The reason we attack each other is because we're all different, right? And if we, if we want to have a movement which presupposes or has, has to have as its wellspring or foundation that we all believe the same thing, we're going to be waiting quite a long time for that, I think. Um, I, don't, I don't look at the existence of Katie Hopkins. Is that the Daily Mail one who we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. I don't look at her. I don't feel very sisterly towards her, I must admit. LAUGHTER um, but I don't look at her and think of her as embodying a failure of feminism to penetrate the female consciousness. I think we will, in the end, these are ideas. They're not, we don't think them with our vaginas. We think them with our minds. And we, and some, and we won't always agree. Um, so I'm not that worried about there being feminist naysayers. I mean, female naysayers. I don't look at Sarah Palin and despair. Um, <laughs> you know, we... <laughs> well, yeah, I do despair, but I don't... I suppose I don't despair on behalf of my gender. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, OK, that's, yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> I think often the, the actual gender of the person who's saying these hate-filled and stupid things is unimportant. The point is they're playing into a system, which I think you could well call patriarchy, which keeps men at the top. It's all about the big gorillas fighting each other and treating the rest of us mm. like, you know, pew fodder or voting 
booth fodder. We don't count, they do. Yeah. It's a very exclusionary picture. Yeah, but I also think behind your question is the fact that kind of... It is a bit depressing to see women enter politics and instead of shaking it up and introducing new values and making women's issues and childcare issues and equal pay the front of what should be being talked about or just behaving differently at the dispatch box, right, not being so boys clubbish. It is depressing when women come into politics and embody the worst aspects of patriarchal power, Mm. right? So different generation, but for me, Margaret Thatcher, you know, the sinking of the Belgrano is the moment at which she asserts her phallic authority. I have no other word for it. And I think there is a problem here, which is about patriarchy, just picking up what Sophie Grace was saying, is we do still live in a patriarchal culture. But what I always say, or always try and get my mind around, is that, of course, if patriarchy didn't exist, we wouldn't need feminism. But if it was a total, self-closed, perfect system, we wouldn't have feminism, right? Which is to say that there are breaks in the system and that's where women should aim for whilst acknowledging the power it has to continue oppressing us. And certain women, well, it relates to the meritocracy thing. They think, I just want to be up there with the guys. You know, I want to be the woman who is as powerful as these men are. And I, th- I, I disagree with Zoe here. I think it is depressing, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's depressing. <laughs> well, I, that's a, it's a really good question, and I, and, I, and I agree with Jacqueline. I think that um, in my talk I ended saying we are greater than the sum of our parts, and one of the things is that... Um, bad women, <laughs> not good yeah. feminist women you know, women who are prime ministers and blow people up, um, are, are part of this illusion again. I'm not stuck on this concept of illusion, but the idea we're juxtaposed against each other. So, you know, the politicians can say, well, look, there is a woman in this place. In fact, they use role models. They say, hey, you've got a role model. Look, they, um, you know, they can succeed and so on. So the idea that we have women who are not feminists, who don't do good things for other women, and who are part of the infrastructure and part of the patriarchal system, actually justifies patriarchy and actually keeps it going. Because they say, well, look, here's a woman. So it comes back to this nature-nurture thing. The gender of the person becomes the change. Mm. Look, we've done it, but you haven't done it. So it's the illusion of equality through bad women. Mm. Naughty. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think we've got time for one more question. (coughs) I might have to run out in the middle of it because I I have a childcare issue, ridiculously. (laughs) (laughs) Question here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. So in relation to the first two questions of role models and political parties, I'm from Sweden and we have a feminist initiative, explicit feminist party, who almost made it into parliament in 2014. And... I just wonder, in the UK context, do you think it's more worth, if we want to achieve a feminist utopia at some point in the future, should we change, for example, labour from within, or should we focus on creating an explicit feminist political party? I have very strong views about then. Should we work to to make that bigger, or should we work to change labour, given the, the 
I think, strange voting system that you have in this country. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, yeah, I'll answer and then I'll run out, but don't think I'm rude. Um, well, you might, but... <laughs> anyway, I mean, I have profound problems with the Women's Equality Party because, to me, it's an apolitical party, and I don't think you can exist... As you, I don't think you can have a feminist agenda without addressing systemic inequalities. And I actually don't think there's any point only being interested in equality between men and women if you're not interested in wider equality. It's, just, it's a bit random. It's like, why would you choose solidarity with your own gender? Why not choose it with the other gender if there isn't a precept of, fundament- of equality as a fundamental goal in which case you have to pursue it more widely. Um, and, that, and that is my problem with, the, with WEP, and they won't take it on at all. And whenever you, whenever you say that to them, whenever you say you should de facto be a socialist party if, you, if you're interested in equality at all, they say, no, 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 we're just here to move the mainstream agenda further towards us. And I just think that's a futile aim because we've seen what happens when you move the mainstream agenda further towards you. They do it while it's fashionable and they hug their hoodie and they, beat, and they whip their huskies, I think, in a nice way. And then, and then the huskies are gone and the hoodies are in prison and everything's back to normal. You know, you don't move the agenda in that cosmetic way, I don't think. All right, I'm off. On that note, uh, we should finish. Um, I'd like to thank you again for coming. Uh, I'd like to remind you that our speakers will be signing books upstairs. And I'd like to invite you to thank our speakers once again.